Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Sometimes I think we just ought to do the whole service, just meeting and greeting and getting to know each other better. Love that, don't you? Hey, thanks for being here this morning. As always, I'll start with a very brief prayer. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart be pleasing to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. And may every one of us within the sound of my voice clear our heads of our worries and our concerns and our to-do lists and our, our plans for this afternoon. May we take this short period of time this morning, Lord, to focus on you and what you have to say to us through your holy word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue this series that's focused on the red letters or the words that Jesus said. The premise being that better knowledge and understanding of of what Jesus said is the answer to all of our questions and issues and problems, not just personally, but through our community, through our country, really through the whole world. And today's message is Jesus said you are salt and light. Five weeks ago, we dove into the Sermon on the Mount. We started in Matthew 5, which begins with a series of nine different pronouncements that that Jesus made to describe some of, not all, the different kinds and types of people and situations that God blesses. And these are known as the Beatitudes. Dallas Willard wrote a beautiful book called Divine Conspiracy that I've been devouring. I've gone over the first five, six chapters probably seven times each. And and, and he helps us with this explanation. He says the Beatitudes are simply explanations and illustrations about the availability of the kingdom of God through a personal relationship with Jesus. He's singling out cases to provide proof that in him the rule of God from the heavens truly is available in spite of life circumstances that are very often beyond all human control and hope. They're not a set of how-tos, certainly not a complete list of all the ways mankind is blessed. Neither are the Beatitudes a required list of behaviors or life circumstances to qualify someone for God's kingdom. Last week, when remembering what happened leading up to Easter, we used the fifth beatitude, Matthew 5, 7. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And I want to go back to that to insert a a quick clarification on something that I said last week. We read about Joseph of Arimathea taking a chance and asking Pilate the ruler for permission to take Jesus' body down from the cross and bury it. Then Nicodemus, the Pharisee who'd come to see Jesus secretly at night, helped Joseph wrap the body, place it in the tomb. And in doing so, both men took a chance. They risked the wrath of the Roman government and especially of their religious colleagues, and they had to miss Passover, that very important celebration, because they had been ceremonially defiled by touching a dead body. And I said, quote, Scripture doesn't address what happened to Joseph and Nicodemus, but I have to believe they were blessed for their mercy shown to the body of Jesus that day under extremely dangerous circumstances, 
End quote. Now, I want to clarify that I did not say that either one of the men were granted admission into paradise for eternity because of their mercy. That only happens when we have faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And there are questions as to whether either of them really did. God granting them salvation because of the kindness they showed to the body of Jesus would have been what we call salvation by works. And we all know that's not how it works, right? Salvation is through faith alone. So what I was trying to convey is that I hope with all my heart that both those men, through witnessing the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, had their hearts so changed that they somehow came to be more than just fans of, more than just followers of Jesus, and that they confessed him as Lord and Savior. Now, if that happened, won't it be incredibly amazing to hear their stories in the future when we meet them both in paradise? And if it didn't happen, well, then it's such a stark reminder to all of us. We're each surrounded by people who are good and kind and well-meaning. They do many nice things for others. Good people who are part of the positive works that go on in our community every single day. They may even go to church. Yet if they have not confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, if they have not asked him to come into their hearts and take over their lives, then they will not be allowed into the kingdom of God. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven and safe people do. And I ask you each to think of people like that that you know, those that you would describe as wonderful, but who don't know Jesus, so they're not saved. Please begin to pray for them and ask the Lord to put something or someone in their pathway to help them see the way, the truth, and the life known as salvation only through Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead this week and finish off the Beatitudes. So we'll go to our next one, which is verse 8. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. With Jesus, it's all about the pureness of our heart, not what we look like or give away or do or say. And it's certainly not about following carefully all the rules and regulations of a church hierarchy, a ceremony, or even strict obedience to tradition. Psalm 24.3 says, Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies. They will receive the Lord's blessings and have a right relationship with God, their Savior. Our next beatitude is in verse 9. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. This one's often misunderstood and misused. It's not telling us that we necessarily need to be a complete pacifist. William McDonald says, Notice that the Lord is not speaking about people with a peaceful disposition or those who love peace. He's referring to those who actively intervene to make peace. The natural approach is to watch strife from the sidelines. But the divine approach is to take positive action towards creating peace, even if it means taking abuse and anger. And please also note where it says peacemakers will be called sons of God. Again, this is not how they become sons of God. 
That can only happen again by receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. But by making peace, believers manifest themselves as sons of God, and God will one day acknowledge them, hopefully you, as people who bear his family likeness. Now, most of us will quickly claim to be peaceful people, yet few can honestly say we look for opportunities to work towards peace. As a matter of fact, we typically avoid situations that aren't peaceful because they make us uncomfortable and they can cause us problems. When we try to bring two sides together, we risk making them both mad at us, right? Ever have that happen? And though we may not have any involvement in the disagreement, peacemakers have to be willing to invest their personal time and energy and sometimes even your reputation with everyone involved in the disagreement. Now, this is very different from just sticking your nose into other people's business without being asked to. I'm way too good at that. But there are times when even though you're invited to intervene, both sides are going to turn against you. Just ask a police officer who has ever been called to a home for a domestic violence situation. Jesus calls us to direct the love and care he pours out on us onto, into the lives of others. Working for peace requires deep prayer and the willingness to listen carefully to both viewpoints. While we understand we don't have all the answers, we always trust that the Lord does. So we do our best to point both sides towards him and his word. We look for common interests or goals that all parties share and start with gaining small, simple areas of agreement, making sure we're personally at peace with Jesus and all those around us is the best way to start each day, and it's the basic foundation of being willing and able to help others make peace between themselves. It's all about you and me and our desire to be called children of God. Now to the final two Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. Jesus said, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So I know you're normal and you're going, hold on. Jesus wants us to be happy when people mock us and lie about us and persecute us? Absolutely. He has a much different perspective on what happens to us in this life and what really matters. He knows that when we're mistreated because of our faith in Jesus, it indicates we're living a life that is right in God's sight. Because if we take the easy route, go along with the crowd, and behave like everyone else, the world usually leaves us pretty much alone. And persecution teaches us not to focus on the praise of people that we so naturally desire and sometimes even crave. It reminds us to set our eyes on the eternal prize. Train your brain to understand that Jesus has a way of divinely multiplying the rewards of the future as we persevere through the poor treatment 
that is hitting us today. Your complete faith that God is in control and will win in the end allows you to survive the difficulties and encourages other believers to do the same. Now, most of us would never compare ourselves with great biblical heroes like Noah, Daniel, Elijah, or John the Baptist, yet that's the category Jesus puts you in when you live for him instead of the comforts of this world, no matter what the consequences may be. And just a quick note, it does not say God blesses those who are persecuted because they are poor examples of Christianity. Selfish, self-righteous, holier than thou, looking down at others, on and on. It's a long list, but we don't have time to go through it all. And, and I promise that, unfortunately, it wouldn't take much effort to find wait staff at local restaurants who have horror stories about the Christians who come in after church on Sunday. And they leave a big mess and they tip poorly, if at all. And there's the story that haunts me that goes around of the Bible track that looks just like a $100 bill on one side and has the steps to find Jesus on the other side. That is not the kind of behavior that any of us should expect to be blessed for. And if we're talked about poorly for behavior like that, good, we deserve it. So, so don't embarrass our faith, your faith, by your bad example, and then try to blame it on persecution. And I do note that you've heard me teach before, I believe that true persecution is around the corner sooner than a lot of us may expect. So it's time we prepare ourselves for it spiritually. So if you're going to eat out after service today, treat your waiter or waitress, all the staffers, as if they were your son or your granddaughter, okay? And make sure you tip them very generously and behave in a way that will make them want to be more like you. And then you can invite them to service at New Covenant after that, okay? Next, Jesus launches into a very long, very detailed teaching about a wide variety of actions and attitudes that the religious elite, the church of that day, had taught, understood, and used very wrongly for hundreds of years. Over time, the church had twisted and turned the scriptures into a difficult list of rules and regulations and used them in a way that was very different from the way that God had intended. And over the next several times that I'm able to teach, we'll go through the critically important and still relatable list of subjects that Jesus taught us about, including anger, adultery, divorce, vows, revenge, loving your enemies, giving to the needy, plus a whole lot more. And Jesus lays it out in a way that we can clearly understand and in the way that God had intended from the very start. Now, I mentioned that the religious elites, basically the Pharisees, the Sadducees, a lot of the priests, had misunderstood Scripture and law. At least I hope that's what happened because otherwise it means they purposely twisted it for their own advantage and status to keep themselves on top and everyone else on the bottom. You recently heard me mention Rabbi Russell Resnick. He's a Messianic Jew and for those unfamiliar with that term, it just means he's Jewish and believes that Jesus or Yeshua, as he calls him, is the Messiah. And Russ is well known throughout the world for his teachings and his writings. He came to know Christ as Lord and Savior back in the 70s 
in Taos, New Mexico, where I understand a, a bunch of hippies hung out at a Christian coffee shop with our own Don Compton, who's in the back of the room with us this morning. And eventually, they became Jesus freaks. I, I, always, I always love to say, I used to hate the Jesus freaks, and now I am one. So uh, glad, glad Russ is with us on that. Um, but some of you in our, in our family here at New Covenant are friends with Russ, and I, I hope to meet him in person someday and would love to be able to invite him to speak here at some point. I'm really enjoying his book, Divine Reversal, and we'll look more closely at what he says about Jesus completely turning things around from the Pharisees' point of view, from what they were teaching to what God intended from the start as we go over the subjects Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount in the weeks to come. And, and Rabbi Resnick says, whatever Jesus was trying to teach to tell the Pharisees back then, he is trying to teach and tell us the same thing today. And that's really important. We love to criticize the Pharisees, but do we ever stop to think to ask if we're guilty of making the same mistakes, misunderstanding, misusing God's holy word? The Beatitudes were pronouncements that Jesus made one after another. The remainder of the Sermon on the Mount is actually a sermon, perhaps the best one ever. It's long and wide-ranging, and please feel free to read ahead. It's worth it. In Matthew 5.13, we read, You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. That illustration was easily understood by those Jesus spoke to. Most of us enjoy salt to flavor our food today, but it was much more highly prized back then. And in looking into this, I've become fascinated with it. According to Mark Kurlansky, author of a book called Salt, it's the only rock we eat, Salt has shaped civilization from the very beginning, and its story is a glittering, often surprising part of the history of humankind. It's a substance so valuable, it served as currency and was often traded for gold. Salt has influenced the establishment of trade routes and cities, provoked and financed wars, secured empires, and inspired revolutions. It was very difficult to obtain and vital to sustain and grow civilization. Along with the improved taste it added to meals, it was used to preserve foods, especially foods being transported to market centuries before, of course, refrigeration existed. And I love this one. The word salary actually comes from the Latin word for salt. So Jesus, speaking of something those listening that day considered extremely valuable as being so useless that it needed to be thrown out must have really grabbed the attention of those who were there. Jesus uses salt to help us see our place in this world. Christians can and should provide great value to everyone that we come into contact with. And we're to add a wonderful flavor to life through the joy we exude and the examples we set for others to hopefully learn from and imitate. And preserving the teachings and examples of Jesus leads us to live a life that will encourage others to describe us as the salt of the earth. And speaking of preservation, I can't pass up this opportunity 
to express eternal gratitude for the thousands of faithful Christians who helped preserve God's Word over the last 5,000 years. That goes back to the Jews, too. Originally written on scrolls that had to be guarded and protected, they were very sensitive to weather, fires, wars, total destruction. The scribes who dedicated their lives to copying and recopying everything down perfectly to, as Jesus said, the last jot and tittle. And, and those through more recent history who hide and smuggle Bibles into many nations who've outlawed God's Word and do their best to burn and destroy, to wipe the Scripture off the face of the earth so mankind can continue to learn and greatly benefit from the beautiful words of God today. But of course, no book, how good, how powerful, can have any effect on those who don't read it. So our personal part in the preservation of God's love letter to us, known as the Bible, starts with us reading it on a regular basis, studying it, memorizing key scriptures that speak to us, and encouraging others to do the same. And we have to always remember that while learning what the Bible says is important, it's useless if we don't practice doing what the Bible says. And when it comes to Scripture, I always say, learn it, love it, live it. And that process requires us to put God's Word into our heads, to pray that it migrates into our hearts and then works itself out through our hands and feet. That's how we actively preserve our faith and God's Word and be the salt of this world. Now, before we move on from salt to light, I want to share something that the Lord put on my heart while reading this passage for the umpteenth time this past week. Over the years, I've heard a lot of solid teachings and explanations about the value and the use of salt in ancient times, but it never hit me until now that our focus on this today is still off a little bit from what Jesus was saying back then. Remember back five weeks ago in the very first installment of the series when we talked about who the audience was for Jesus that day? Scripture says Jesus took his disciples up on the hillside to give them this message. But later on in Matthew in chapter 7, it says when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he taught with real authority. So we know the people were listening. And remember what we said about just who those people were? They were the down and out, the outcasts, those who weren't good enough to be included in God's blessings, at least according to the religious leaders of that day. They were ostracized, shunned, thought of as dirty and often taken advantage of. And a lot of them had traveled great distance under extremely difficult conditions to be healed of their disease or physical condition. Others came with no money, no food, no place to stay. They prayed to just get close to just be able to physically touch Jesus because word had spread that healing power came out of his body. They just wanted to hear him speak, not actually understanding that he wasn't just going to talk, but to speak truth and hope that had never been heard before into their very lives. These were the people Jesus was making his main points about throughout all of the Beatitudes. No matter what hand life has dealt you, you can still receive the kingdom of God by trusting in the one who
who deals those cards. And accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior is the trump card that makes you an eternal winner in the kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus said to the people, you are the salt of this world, he was in effect saying, you are valuable. You are precious. You right over there are special. Both in this world and in the one to come. And can you imagine how that idea must have blown their minds? And, and of course, Jesus didn't just say they were valuable and precious and useful. He showed it day after day by the way he treated those who came to him, looking them in the eye, listening to them, eating with them, which was a very sensitive, personal, social interaction in those days, and caring about what was important in their lives. And they didn't know it at the time, but Jesus would soon demonstrate just how much he valued them by sacrificing his life so they could be forgiven of their sins. So we can be forgiven of ours. And then, of course, like any good coach or teacher, he warned them about the danger of losing their value, wasting their potential for doing good. Because in those days, salt that had lost its flavor was tossed out onto the roadways to be used as nothing more than gravel. And William McDonald makes another good point. He says, a true disciple needs to function well as the salt of the earth in a living discipleship to Jesus. If he fails to exhibit that spiritual reality on a daily basis, others will tread on his testimony, grinding it under their feet. The world has only contempt for an undedicated believer. Think about that. In verse 14, Jesus said, You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Again, Jesus stuns his listeners by praising them, of all people, as the light of the world. That put them in the same category as him. Think about it. In, in John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. And in John 14, 20, he said, when I'm raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. All is one. So when Jesus said, you are the light of the world, he was saying, you and me, we are the light of the world. And in ancient times, think about it. Light was rare and valuable and difficult to obtain. Most of it came from fire they burned in an open pit or an earthen oven or, or a fireplace of sorts. And you didn't just flick your bick to light something up back then. And no, they didn't have little boxes of matches either. You either had to keep a fire going day after day or be very good at starting one from scratch off and out in the elements. Now, torches were available, but not common for the average person. Small lamps that required valuable oil provided a little bit of portable light. And once you got your little light going, you didn't keep it all to yourself. You willingly shared it with anyone and everyone who could benefit from what you had. 
And it's the same with our Christian faith. The key is to understand that Jesus is the source of that light, and we are just the reflection. We cannot create light on our own power. Just as the moon produces no illumination on its own, but relies on the light from the sun, the S-U-N, we are only able to produce light by reflecting the light of the sun, S-O-N, Jesus. And just like the moon on a clear summer night, a willing Christian can reproduce and reflect a brilliant light. And in speaking of this, we are talking about several different perspectives. Shining can happen through our words, our actions, our attitudes, even our smiles and our twinkling eyes. Shining for Jesus happens when we're kind to others, when we're caring and concerned, when we are sharing whatever we have to give, whenever we can help someone else learn about life and especially the Lord. And when we team up and work in groups, our brightness is multiplied and magnified. Yes, we can reflect His glow on our own, but doing it with other believers is more fun, more effective, and more noticeable to the rest of the world. And as the church, we can be like that city on the hill. I had a beautiful trip to Israel one time, and looking up towards Jerusalem on that hill at night is an incredible sight. And that is how Jesus wants the world to see us his shining light gives us great power, the ability to attract uh, others to his brilliance, his mercy, and his forgiveness, and his willingness to give us each a fresh start with a clean and forgiven heart. Now, Jesus was sort of poking fun at us for hiding our light under a basket. We hide our light when we pass up any opportunity to speak about what Christ has done in our life. When we, uh, for example, are praised about doing something. I, I, I have this bed ministry that, that's placed 14,000 people in, in, in free beds, and I say, I have it. When people praise me for it, I say, thank you. God had plans I had no clue about, and I still don't know how this happened, but he gets all the credit. When we neglect to pray in public, like we sit down at a meal and we would normally pray, but we don't do it because we're in mixed company or we're embarrassed, we're... we're hiding our light under a basket when we downplay the importance that Jesus and our church play in our lives do your neighbors and co-workers even know you're a Christian when we go along with the crowd even though we know they're heading in the wrong direction or when we participate in their jokes and conversations that that we know aren't pleasing to the Lord when we don't explain the source of our light our joy our hope our faith to others. You know, it's so easy to sprinkle in conversations without preaching and beating on people. If somebody says, gosh, you seem to be handling this negative situation so well, how are you doing this? And it's like, gosh, I don't know, but I just love the way the Lord is helping me through this. When we ignore the needs and the opportunity to share with or serve those in need, or when we sin and let sin win again and again and again using cheap grace. God's going to forgive me. I'm good. Yet we magnify and multiply our light when we stay connected to our faith. Daily prayer, time in God's word, fellowship with other believers, small groups, Bible studies, special outings, retreats, even getting together in one and two at a time. And of course, being in church every time it's possible. 
God has good reason for wanting us all here every Sunday. And it has nothing to do with our attendance numbers or the collection plate. It's all about you soaking up the sunshine as you learn about God. And leaving here glowing with the ability to reflect it back out into this dark and dreary world. And it has to do with you being here to learn what God's Word has to speak into you at this very moment. The Holy Spirit works in amazing ways. There are hundreds of us in this room right now, and though I'm only saying one set of words, the Holy Spirit gives different messages to different people at different times from this same moment. And when we allow Him to work in us through what He puts in our heart and our minds, we shine. And as we leave this gathering refreshed and on fire, Encouraged to go out and speak the truth in love. Emboldened to be able to bring up Jesus more often in our daily conversations. Enabled through a better understanding of who God is and what He wants to speak into the lives of others to truly make a difference. We produce, we reflect a stunning collective brilliance that can only come from a group dedicated to their Christianity and glued together by faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, the good deeds that Jesus speaks of here may come from serving in outside ministries like our outreach at noonday each month where we feed and reach and teach and touch the homeless and the near homeless. Or by stepping up and answering our call for Sunday school leaders and assistants in our children's program next door. We're offering to to pioneer and volunteer with the SHINE program at E.G. Ross we've, we've spoken of. It might be something that pops up at work or school or maybe even on the way home in a few minutes at the gas station or the restaurant. And it could very well be simply inviting someone to come with you to church and not just giving up because they give you some lame excuse the first 400 times. God may guide you to come alongside a newer believer to disciple them, to help them learn how to study the Bible. I was able to give a a, a modern language Bible to a lady who just accepted Christ a couple of weeks ago this morning, and I'm so excited for her. He, He may lead you to counsel or encourage someone who's struggling. He does not give us the light to hoard for ourselves, to hide under the basket. His intention, his design is that we share it freely with others and the emphasis is not on what we do but who and how we worship our ministry is displayed each and every day by how we live our lives through our Christian character now don't be fooled into thinking that handing a dollar to the guy on the corner or dropping off a bag of clothes that you're uh, done with that you've worn out and outgrown and dropping them off next door at goodwill on your way in or telling somebody i'll pray for you is what jesus is talking about here those things are all fine but you're capable we are capable able to do so much more you see you and me we also have great value in god's eyes and in addition the light of jesus shining into us shining through us gives us his amazing power And Scripture tells us to whom much has been given, much more is expected. So these amazing gifts of power and value bring with them great responsibility. So first and foremost, all glory, every ounce, goes to our Heavenly Father. Whenever someone tells you how wonderful you think they are, 
You just say, thanks, that's an answer to prayer, but God gets all the credit. And we spoke of good deeds, and the best thing we can ever possibly do is to obey God's word. His written instructions to us, all right here in the scripture. And think of what we focused on again and again during the message last week at Easter. The most important words that Jesus said. The last thing he spoke of before he ascended into heaven. Go tell the others. Go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. I want to show you um, a photograph. I think we can put it up on screen. You've all heard of the forest fires that are ravaging huge parts of our state. And this is a little church outside of Rosiata, New Mexico. A friend of mine, John, runs a beautiful ranch, a Christmas tree farm up there. And I ask you to pray. And it's within uh, about a mile and a half. And this is just a small part of that huge blaze. We've heard what happened to our friends and neighbors in Redoso, northern eastern New Mexico. And I ask you to pray for everyone and for their churches. This, I think, is just an example that it's not just the forest fires. It's not just the big windstorm we had on Friday. Our world's on fire in a lot of ways. And we are here to be the salt and the light to preserve what God has given us, to shine for him at every opportunity, to care, to share, to pray, to say, I'll be there. And we can do such amazing, such powerful things through our corporate prayer, through our concern, through our love. And it should help us to treasure this building and this facility as Pastor David said, we're in, a, we're in a transitional time. It can be difficult. A lot of folks have been very sad, very concerned. But I'm incredibly optimistic. I see so many of you who are beautiful believers, who are examples of what I wrote about and taught about today, who inspire me every single week. And I see others who are coming alongside and are eager to learn. So don't give up. Don't give in. Never stop praying. Never stop shining. Never stop preserving. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. So, until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May God smile on you and gift you. May God look you full in the face and make you prosper. Have a great week.